We are in the book of Titus. And uh, let me catch you up where we've been in the book of Titus. In chapter 1 of Titus, Paul looked at the leadership. And there is a recurring theme in the book of Titus that uh, we're going to see a little more distinctly this morning. And the theme is if our lives don't match, if they contradict, then we've got some we've got some issues. Chapter one, Paul says we need leaders in the church, and if their lives don't line up, then we've got some we've got some serious issues. If they're not above reproach in the eyes of the community, those in the world, then we've got some issues. We've got some things we have to address. Chapter two, he went from the leaders to the laity, to to us. To the congregation, to the believers, to us as individual disciples. And he says the same thing. Listen, our lives have to line up with our message. Our lives can't contradict. And, and all through Titus 2, at least three times, he alludes to the fact that if our lives don't line up, if we're not doing the things in the body of Christ, believer to believer, if we're not doing those things, then the world has this ability and a right that Scripture gives them to look at our lives and say, you know what? Their lives don't match their message. Their faith is invalid. It is, in a sense, in vain. They have the God-given right to do that. Paul says, in the church, our lives have to match. Chapter 3, he's going to go from the leaders to the laity in the church. Now he's going to say to the laity, listen, your lives have to line up, not just in in the body, but your lives have to line up with those who are outside the church looking in. Meaning, your interaction in society, in Christianity, for Christians who are uh, born again, have a new and revived moral foundation and fiber, a sense of integrity and right and wrong about them. There is a tendency for us who are who are part of that moral basis now of Christianity, that moral fiber that just comes along with righteousness and holiness, there's a tendency for us to uh, sort of take sides, that it's us against the world. And there's a danger that comes with that. I know that many of you, many of you have uh, become increasingly distressed with the downward spiral of our society specifically our own country. Many of you are extremely frustrated with our school systems, our government systems, uh, all, all kinds of systems, right, that we see that seem to be breaking down in our society. Amen? I mean, you guys see that? Am I alone? You see that. I hear you talking about it. I hear the struggles. Those of you with young children, what do I, what do, I do? Do I send my kids to public school anymore? Do I, do I homeschool? Do I send them to private What do I do? Those of you who follow... Politics and government. What do I do do with these candidates? How do I find the right person? What do I do with these issues? What do I do with with our country? Where do I stand? How do I respond to a society that does once, based on a Judeo-Christian ethic, that has now, in essence, walked away from that? And some of you are watching our country and you're seeing... Uh, things fall apart. You're seeing families fall apart. You're seeing, um, seeing God-designed systems fall apart. And you're wondering, how do I, how do I react? What is my place? What do, I, what do I do? There is a tendency 
There is a, a subculture of Christianity that has responded to that tension, to that struggle uh, in an extreme way. There is a segment of our society that has decided to fight evil with evil. And I don't, I don't know that they realize it. I think in many cases it is well, well-meaning, well-intentioned, and with pure motives. But some of the tactics don't line up with their Christianity. Paul in chapter 3 to the island of Crete is going to address this. Uh, the Cretans were known, well-known historian Polybus, he said of the Cretans that they are murderous, uh, murderous and um, they incite riots against government. And they were known. They were insurrectionists, he called them. They were known for their knee-jerk, violent response to the government that was very, but they were known for taking a road that, uh, that Paul would not have them take. And so when Paul sets up this church and he's got Titus on the island of Crete, he has to address this. He has to say, okay, church, we've got our leaders and their life needs to line up. In the church, among our, among our, our congregations, our lives need to line up. We have to treat each other the right way. We have to be in relationships the right way. Now, how do we act? How do we deal with those who are outside the church? That's Titus chapter 3. Let's look at it. Titus chapter 3, start in verse 1. Paul says this to Titus. The first word is remind. Remind. This is something that uh, he assumes they've already known. He's already taught them. But for some reason, Paul believes, and it is uh, probably wisdom on his part, to believe that this is one of those things that we need to be reminded of over and over and over. Lest our old nature creep back in and say, let's act this way instead of let's act righteously. Let's act like Christ would act. Remind them to be subject to rulers. Let me, let me tell you, he's going to give a list here of things that we have to do and have to not do. Uh, a description, if you will, of what a Christian should look like in society, all right? I'm going to track through this list here, and I'm not going to spend too much time on them, but we got to, as any list, we got to, we got to just chomp through these here. Number one, he says, remind them to be subject to rulers. Literally, they have to place themselves under. Do I have to submit myself to a government that is thoroughly pagan? I mean, these guys were, were horrible. Any frustrations you have about our government in our day, Paul's frustrations, New Testament believers' frustrations, exceeded. They had every issue that we deal with today. Okay? Don't, for a second, believe that the Roman Empire was somehow easier on the first century Christians than the oppression that we feel today in America. Okay? That somehow we've got it harder. I mean, we've got to deal with the schools. And you go through your list and think, uh, somehow we've got it more difficult. Uh, just the fact alone that they could lose their life because of their faith makes it makes it more difficult for them. Okay, they had a hard time. They had a hard government to deal with. But Paul says over and over in the New Testament that because God is the one who has placed the authority over us, He has set up this system of government itself. Government was not uh, man's idea; it was God's idea from the very beginning. And God has designed it, and He has placed us in a position where we are to submit. To government, we have to do that. And he's already said that several times in other letters, and so maybe that's one of the reasons why he says, listen, remind them 
that we have to fall under. We have to willingly place ourselves under, despite the corruption, despite the immorality that is in our government, despite uh, the leaders are uh, morons. Whatever you think about the government, Pharisees would give Jesus this rock in a hard place sort of question where they would say, hey, what, what would you do, Jesus, this or this? Knowing that if he does this, he's going to get in trouble with Israel. Knowing that if he does this, he's going to get in trouble with Roman authorities. And they said, Jesus, what do, you, what do we do about these tax things we give to Caesar? You remember that? And the famous uh, uh, response that Jesus gives us after he, he says, why are, you guys, why are you guys putting me in this situation? Uh, revealing that I, I know your motives. He says, why don't you just... Uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And he asked for one of the coins. He says, give me, give me one of the coins you pay your taxes with. And there was a, there was a, a picture, an engraving of Caesar on it. He says, if it has Caesar's picture on it, give it to Caesar, in essence. Now, Jesus knows full well the corruption of the Roman government. Jesus knows full well that the Romans looked at Caesar like a god. Jesus knows full well that Israel considers it idolatry that they've put his picture on the coin. Jesus chooses not to address any of those issues. Don't miss that. He says simply, give Caesar what is his, give God what is his. There is no record of Jesus ever, ever rebelling against earthly authorities. Jesus always finds a way to be subject and to be obedient to God. He always finds a way. The disciples themselves wanted to wipe out the oppressive Romans, raise up Israel, your chosen people, and start running things. Jesus never did that. He continued to be subject. He continued to be subject, all the while doing the work of his Father, which was what? He said to seek and to save the lost. That's why I'm here. What was Jesus' response to a corrupt government, to a corrupt society? It's not maybe what some of our responses are these days in Christianity. We're to be subject. Number two, he says we are to be obedient. You know what this means. Very simply, we're to follow the rules, always. We're to be obedient. He doesn't say be obedient sometimes. Did you notice that he said... Be subject to rulers and authorities. And he gave no qualification of level or anything to those guys. So there's no out here. He doesn't say be subject and be obedient to some rulers and authorities or just the top rulers and authorities. Or better yet, he doesn't say be subject to just the good rulers and authorities or just the moral ones or just the ones with integrity. Across the bar, we are to be subject and we are to be obedient. We're to do what we're supposed to do. Are there exceptions? Sure, there are exceptions. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Specifically, Acts 4 shows one of the exceptions where Paul, uh, not Paul, Peter stands before uh, Roman officials and Jewish officials and they say, listen, quit speaking. Yes, that would be an exception. But can I tell you that's rare? That's rare. Even in our downward spiral society, in America it is rare that our country would say, uh, that sort of thing to us. And we're lucky for that. In some parts of the world today, uh, they don't have it that easy. To make that choice that Peter and John made, that we're going to go with God and we're going to follow God's instructions, that His instructions and His commands trump that of men, that could mean your life. 
But we're to be obedient. As a general rule, we are to follow the rules. Number three, be subject, be obedient, be ready for every good deed. Here's what this means, guys. To be ready for every good deed. And you've seen this good deeds thing as a reoccurring theme in the book of Titus. Here's what, here's what to be ready for every good deed means. It simply means that we don't submit and we aren't obedient out of duty. We are submissive. We are obedient. We do the right things. The inference is that we do it with eagerness and willingness. That our attitude as believers is not, man, I gotta, I gotta live in this, I gotta live in this country. I gotta, I gotta follow these rules. I gotta pay these taxes. And uh, man, my homeowners association even, they don't know what they're doing. And I gotta, I gotta listen to those guys. Whatever, whatever the ruler and authority is, right? Our attitude is not to be one of one of um, in our neighborhoods, in our homeowners groups, in our PTA groups, whatever it is, whatever that structure of authority is, they're all inclusive here. Whatever it is, we need to be eager, ready, willing, looking for places where we can make a difference, where we can share out of the love of God with those who are around us. We're to be subject, obedient, ready. Number four, he says, we're to malign no one. This is an interesting word. He says, uh, literally, we're to blaspheme no one. It's the same word there for malign as used for the word blaspheme. It's actually just a transliteration. It means that we don't speak out in word against those who are in authority negatively. So our deeds are to line up, but not just our deeds, but our words have to line up. Now, let me tell you, this is where a lot of us get off track, and I'll include myself. If the powers that be aren't who we like, if the next president isn't who we would choose, if the current president isn't who you chose, even as Christians, we have this tendency to mouth off and complain and blame and be critical to, in a sense, blaspheme the name of those who are in leadership. And Paul says that's not right. That can't be a mark of Christians. We can't be the kind of people who go around complaining and uh, exposing our supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all. That's a difference, isn't it? As opposed to maligning, he says, why don't you pray for these guys? Keep going, interesting. For kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Keep going. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. What does God want us to look like? What is good and acceptable? That kind of person. Not the Christian who's bitter against the government, who although we know there are levels of corruption everywhere, there are things that don't measure up to Christian morals and standards, etc., we can't be the kind of people who run around bitter complaining about the authorities that be. We don't want to be those people. Keep going. Number five. He says, in addition, we can't be contentious. We can't be contentious. Some of your translations say that we must be peaceable. Literally, it means that we can't be fighters. We can't be brawlers. That no matter what the issue is when it comes up and we don't like it, that we're going to fight over it. That can't be a mark of our attitude as believers. We're not quarrelsome. We're not belligerent. Don't let your dissatisfaction with the ones who bring 
uh, our morality and the integrity of our society down, don't let that dissatisfaction carry into your attitude towards them. That can't be a mark of Christians. We don't live like that. It does damage if we do. Control on any level aren't going to be perfect. Amen? That shouldn't surprise us. And in turn, we shouldn't knee-jerk react, be bitter, angry, and rebel against that authority. Keep going. Number six. Number six. He says, be gentle. Some of your translations may say, be kind. This is a, a word that's used in both the Beatitudes and in Galatians 5 as the fruits of the Spirit. Listen to what one commentator said here about this word used for gentle. He says, the Greek word for gentle carries with it the basic idea that which, the basic idea of that which is moderate, fair, and forbearing. In regard to treatment of, of others, it has been referred to as the sweet reasonableness. An attitude that does not hold grudges, but always gives others the benefit of the doubt. Rusty, put First Peter 3.15 up. But sanctify the Lord your God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness. That's another translation of the same word, to be gentle or kind. That we are to be people who are meek. That's what we are to look like. If you were to paint a picture of a Christian in society, the society should look at that individual Christian and say, this guy is gentle, kind, or meek. That's the same word. Meekness and fear. Keep going. Be so nice that like heaping coals on their head, they're just going, it's going gonna, it's gonna to infuriate them to the point where they, where they see through our goodness that our message is correct. Are, are you following that? We're not to be rebellious. We're not to be responsive in a bitter, angry way. We're to be seen in our society from the top down as meek and gentle. This word, this word gentle here that he uses, it has the inference that uh, it, it's used in, legal, in a legal sense throughout, uh, throughout antiquity, that it meant uh, that we're not people who hold to the letter of the law. Now, let me explain that. What it means is, is that we're, we're flexible. And even though our rights, we, we have our rights, and maybe someone infringes on our rights, and we could, we could sue over it, that's not our natural instinct. That's not our first reaction as believers. Our response as believers, even when our rights have been infringed upon, even when we can hold someone to the letter of the law, our response is to be gentle forbearing, meek. We, we let some things go. Are you, are you tracking with me here? Uh, I drove, I have two entrances to my neighborhood, and I drove by one entrance the other day, uh, just this week, and uh, I saw this guy, he's got, um, and some of you have, um, have the same story, uh, this guy who's sort of at the front, he's parked some cars. And I imagine he's working on these cars. I don't know. But he's got four or five cars lined up back behind his fence. Now, he can't see them. He's got a six-foot privacy fence. From his house, he can't see these things. And really, if he were backing up to the woods or something like that, no one would ever know. But he lives up by the, by the main road where if you drive by and you look into our neighborhood, you see that this guy's got four or five cars parked out back behind his fence. And they're not really going anywhere. Okay? And my thought was, what in the world is this guy doing? 
I mean, I'm not huge on property value and all that sort of stuff. Some of you are, and I don't, I don't really get all upset about, you know, the height of people's grass and whether their fence, you know, conforms to code and all this stuff. Uh, but it just kind of irked me, and I thought, if I knew the president, if I knew where the president lived, I'd probably, I wouldn't, I'd go tell him, this is ridiculous. I mean, four or five cars parked back behind your fence, and you live on the main road, that's not right. We can't do that. We can't have that in our We've got to do something about that. And then it, it dawned on me, and I, 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 please hear this. This is not me. This is the Lord. I promise you. It immediately occurred to me, you know what? What if I ever want to go knock on that guy's door and share Christ with him? And I was the guy, I was the Yahoo that went and told the president he's got four or five cars parked in the backyard on blocks. I have every right to do that. I mean, he shouldn't do that. I'm still struggling with this. <laughs> but God says, he was the guy who told on him for having the cars out there. And what's that going to do when you try and then tell him about the gospel? And it shouldn't matter, right? But it could. That's what this word be gentle, forbearing, alludes to. It's Paul saying, listen, we could, we could hold some people to the letter of the law. We could respond to our government in different ways and force them to do different things and complain about things and, 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 and sign some petitions and get a bunch of people in an uproar about different things. We could do that. But is that our goal? Do we accomplish what we are here to accomplish? Do we accomplish what Jesus was here to accomplish, to seek and to save the lost? That's why I'm here. There's sometimes we have to say, you know what, it's just not worth it. It, it, it'll, it'll bring a roadblock that I just don't need. Let me give the last one, and uh, we're going to have to continue this next week. The seventh one on the list here for Paul, as he paints a picture of what we're to look like in society, he says we're to show every consideration for all men. Showing every consideration for all men. Notice again that there's no qualification here. He doesn't say some men. He doesn't say only good men. He doesn't say only whatever qualification you want to put in there. And this is gender neutral as well. So it could say for all men and women, for all mankind, for all humans. Show every consideration. Here's, what he, here's his point. It's not about you getting what you want. Show every consideration for the other person. Be what you think uh, your uh, desires are, no matter what you think you are entitled to. He says we have to be people who, who consider the others first, no matter who they are, good, bad, or ugly, from the top down, from the president to the postman, whoever it is, to the homeowners association president, to the PTA leader, whoever is in authority on whatever level, in generally, in response to our society that is in a downward spiral, no matter how bad it is, our attitude needs to be like this. It needs to be like this. Next week, we'll keep going in this, and he's going to tell us why. In verse 3, first word there is for. It could also be translated because. Why do we do these things? Paul's going to give us the because. Aren't you glad that Scripture always gives us a because? It always gives us a reason. It always gives us the proper and right motivation for doing these things that in some cases don't really even come natural to us. We want to fight. We want to fight evil with evil. And that's not our job. Paul said in 2 Corinthians that we 
Although we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. This is a spiritual battle that we're in. This is a spiritual battle that we're in. Our purpose here on this earth, the rest of your life, number one, biblically it says it's not going to happen. Number two, we have a higher priority. So you get involved as much as you want in politics. You get involved as much as you want of, of, of bringing about social change, doing things that are right. You know, as I, was, as I was praying through this, I think about guys like Martin Luther King Jr. did amazing things. I think about William Wilberforce. Uh, the guys came in here a few Friday nights ago, and we watched a movie about the, the story of William Wilberforce's life, and I was just impressed. This guy, I mean, single-handedly almost, uh, was an abolitionist. He, he got rid of slave trade in his country. I mean, he, he made this huge impact. And then I begin to think, as, as, as important as these men were, a couple things occurred to me. Number one, there, there are very few of those men in history that even make a dent. And that's number two thing that occurred to me. The truth is they only made a dent. Now, don't hear me belittling what these men did. I'm very impressed in what these men did. But we are impressed in what these men did because we look at the huge thing that they they, they took on, and they, they made some headway. But although there's not slavery anymore, do we still deal with racism? Yeah. Have we really come that far? Have we really ultimately solved the problem on the surface? No, we haven't. Why? Because we can fight those surface problems all we want, but until we deal with the heart issue, until we deal with sin, and I think Jesus knew this. Christians, our priority in life is not to go about... Uh, in America for us specifically, trying to get America to look more Christian. The only thing that would do would, put, would be to put a veneer on our country. You know what a veneer is? This wood up here is solid wood. If you were to saw through it and you were to look at a cross section of it, it's solid wood. If you were to go to most of the furniture in my house and you were to saw through it, please don't, um, you wouldn't find solid wood. You'd find what looks like solid wood on the outside, but that's just a veneer. It's just a thin outer wrapping of particle board that is within. To spend our lives, our time, our money, our efforts primarily on social change, moral change in America would simply be to put a veneer on a bigger problem that lies within. Does that make sense? We are called... We are called to make a difference where we can, sure. But first and foremost, we are called to seek and to save the lost. We're called to do what Jesus did. Amen? Hey, we'll finish this up next week. Let's pray.